You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, pastor of New Hope Chapel. Thanks so much for listening. Today you'll be hearing from me as we begin our series called Meeting Jesus. So today we begin our, our new series here called Meeting Jesus. And we're going to hear about different stories in scripture of men and women who encountered Jesus and had changed lives and what took, took place. But I wanted to, you know, I found something interesting. Actually, David passed it on to me. It's, uh, it was in Christianity Today, and it's about the history of beards and ministry. Because I don't know if you know, but there's a lot of persecution that happens to me because I have facial hair. And, uh, and so I thought, I thought we'd recount the history of facial hair in ministry. Beginning as far back as 195, Clement of Alexandria calls the beard the mark of a man and says it is therefore unholy to desecrate the symbol of manhood. In 361, Roman Emperor Julian sports a beard to show his break with the shaven Christian emperors before him and to mark his connection with pagan Roman religion. So there's a not-so-good thing about the beard. In 411, Euthymius says, Only men with a beard can enter his Judean des- desert monastery, not boys with female faces. Thought you might like that one. <laughs> in, the, in the 1000s, there's a lot of things that happen. In 1005 in England, the canons of Edgar say no priest should retain his beard for any time, and a similar law is made in Northumbria uh, three years later. Then, in 1301, the Council of Burgess unequivocally mandates a shaven beard for all who minister within the Holy Church. And in 1096, the Archbishop of, Ru- of Rouen threatens to excommunicate anyone with a beard or with lawn hair, not just clerics. So a lot of persecution for us facial hair men. And in July 6, 1535, at his beheading, Sir Thomas More, this is great, reportedly set his beard away from his neck on the chopping block, saying, my beard has not been guilty of treason. It would be injustice to punish it. (laughs) And for those of you who are tired of taxes, we have the rain tax and the commuter's tax. Henry VIII in 1535 taxes beards. (laughs) Well, today, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Luke. As we look at this new series, we're going to begin with a familiar story at the end of Luke about the road to Emmaus, the road to Emmaus. And today, we're going to be in Luke chapter 24, And we'll begin with verse 13. In Luke 24, verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So this is occurring, a little background, this is occurring on the day of Jesus' resurrection. Um, And these two men are walking towards Emmaus, away from Jerusalem. 
They were there during the weekend in which Jesus was crucified. They were there when he rose from the dead, but they had not seen him. They had only heard reports, as we'll see. In verse 17, it says, He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us uh, that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all the things the prophet has spoken. Did, you, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them, what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. In verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. And they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then Then the two told them what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your resurrection and thank you for your life. Today, we want to hear your voice. We want to see you clearly. We want to experience you just as these men were changed. We want to leave here as changed men and women as well. Open our hearts. Open your word to our hearts as we hear from it this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are three things in the story that I want to focus on. The first are the men. The men in the story. The second is the encounter that takes place. And the third thing is the change that occurs. So these three things that occur in the story. We begin with the men. Who were these men? Well, these were Jewish men observing Passover in Jerusalem. Remember, Passover is one of seven feasts prescribed in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the law. And of those seven feasts, there are three that are pilgrimage festivals. Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles, Passover, and what we celebrated last week, Shavuot, or uh, Pentecost. It's really interesting to note that Jesus uses these pilgrimage festivals when when Israel is gathered together from uh, all parts of the world to reveal himself in marvelous ways. During the Feast of Tabernacles, you might recall, he stands up and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and rivers of living water will well up inside of him. 
It's at Passover, there's this crucifixion, and Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells in the hearts of people. And 3,000 people there in Jerusalem who probably lived in all sorts of parts of the earth, they were saved and took the gospel back with them, setting the stage for the growth of Christianity. So it's the Feast of First Fruits because Jesus rose from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. It's the Sunday morning. And these men are leaving Jerusalem. They're traveling perhaps to home, back to Emmaus on this road. We know that these are two of Jesus' followers. Now, they're not part of the 11 disciples. Remember, by this point, Judas has committed suicide. But these these two two are familiar enough with Jesus' ministry. They know of the women's reports, some of their companions, he said, referring to uh, Peter and John, have gone to the tomb and have reported back what they saw. So they're very familiar with who Jesus is. One of them, it says, is Cleopas. And what we know of Cleopas is that he was Jesus' uncle. So there were, three, there were three women named Mary at the cross where, when Jesus was crucified. One of them was his mother, one of them was Mary Magdalene, and the other one that says was Mary, his mother, it was her sister Mary. Now, I don't think this is like George Foreman where he, everyone gets named the same name in the family. I think what it's saying is it's, it's Mary's sister-in-law. So that would make Cleopas Joseph's brother-in-law or Joseph's brother. So, um, so the, he has a very, a very um, close relationship with Jesus. And then the other one, many uh, early church fathers believed was Alphaeus who was James and Levi's father. So they, there's this connection here. These aren't, these aren't the uh, close 12 of Jesus' disciples, but they're part of Jesus' followers, whether or not these are those, t- those two men. But there's something else about the men. The more important thing is their attitude. Jesus finds them, and when he begins to ask about what, what, what happened, they were downcast. They didn't know what to make of the story of the crucifixion. They didn't know what to make of the story of the resurrection. They they believed that Jesus' crucifixion was so familiar that they were surprised that this stranger, who happened to be Jesus, didn't know the story. And they mentioned, though, they mentioned this being the third day. So it seems to me that they caught on to things that Jesus said, like, in the third day, the temple will be rebuilt. Those types of things. The sign of Jonah, as it's called. They heard the reports about the empty tomb, but it says that uh, they, did not, they did not hear of anyone who had actually seen Jesus. And it says that they had hoped that Jesus would be the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now, perhaps when you, say, when, when you talk about the word, the Messiah, there's a lot of baggage with that word. So a lot of people had different ideas of what the Messiah was going to look like. Even in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, I believe, Peter, after Jesus appears with them and is spending time with them, Peter's like, okay, time to set up your kingdom. And Jesus says, you know, you still don't get it, Peter. You still don't get it. That's not what I am going to do. They, they had the sense that what the Messiah was going to do was going to rid the Roman Empire and was going to establish Israel and establish God's kingdom on earth. So everything like Jesus' crucifixion, even his resurrection, but yet not establishing that kingdom, caused a lot of confusion 
for these guys. But Jesus says one thing about, the, about their beliefs. He says this. He says, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So it's not that Jesus says, well, you you just didn't know. They seem to know a lot. But he says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe. In other words, it seems like they've been given a lot of pieces. Jesus has prepped them for his crucifixion. He has prepped them uh, for his resurrection. He's mentioned these things. There's a lot in the prophets about it. Jesus has spoken about it a lot. And, they, and then they saw what happened at the crucifixion. And then they heard the reports of the empty tomb. But then they just kind of went on their way downcast. In other words, it's not that they didn't know. It's not that they didn't have the evidence. It's that they just couldn't make that leap to believe. To say, Yes, there's this and that. And you know what? Jesus must be alive. This is great news. But no, I don't know, I don't know what to believe. It's sort of like, it sort of has, almost has an agnostic ring to it. I, I, I don't know. I'm just going to go home because I don't know what to believe. And Jesus says, how fo- excuse me, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory. You know, but these two, these two men, I think, speak to us in so many ways, especially here in the church, because like them, we can spend time around Christianity and still miss the point. How many people have I talked to that have said, oh, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll get to church one of these days, and I, and I, say, to my, I say to them, I'm saying, church is not the end. Church is, church is great. Be a part of a church, whether it's here or somewhere else. But don't think going to church makes you a good Christian. Because going to church makes you a Christian like going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger, right? In other words, we can be surrounded and exposed to Jesus and yet still miss the main event, the main point. So Jesus has this amazing encounter with them. And I think out of all, I want to say out of all of the the stories of Jesus' encounter, this might be one of those where I wish I was a fly on the wall, you know, where I'm watching this. Because he he hides his identity somehow. He doesn't reveal himself. And we see this like a couple of times after the resurrection. There's this this moment of sort of a veil. And then Jesus takes it away and they see him. Jesus, as we saw, he chastises them for not believing. And then, this, this is great, he begins in the Pentateuch with Moses and he explains all the scriptures had to say about the Messiah. Now, I wish we had podcasting back then. That is a sermon I would have loved to have recorded. And imagine how, I mean, imagine, I don't know how long this journey was, at least a few miles, at least it took some time. But imagine he, he just goes through everything, all these different points. And they were probably blown away. So he has dinner with them. And it says, At the moment he broke bread and gave thanks and gave it to them, they recognized him. And I wonder, what is it about that event that made them recognize him? And I was thinking about this the other night. I was like, what, 
was it just that Jesus kind of made it, allowed it for them to recognize? But I wonder, you know, I wonder if there was something about the way Jesus prayed that made him, them recognize him. What if when he said the, the blessing, what if it was in traditional Hebrew as he blessed the bread like we, we, we do during Passover? We, you know, we kind of go through that. What if Jesus kind of held the weight of those words? Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, ruler of the universe. What if he said it differently? Right? What if he called God Abba, Daddy? in a way that was different than a lot of prayers. Something about Jesus' relationship with his father made them recognize him, I think. There was something special about Jesus' connection with the father and his relationship with him that they saw that and they immediately recognized him. I believe that that's my opinion, at least in this story. And he allows them to recognize him. And then, just out of the blue, he vanishes. It reminds me that an encounter with God is a connection with the presence and the personal revelation and the word of God. Last week we talked about this in in Pentecost and I said that the point of Pentecost is that the Holy Spirit comes into our lives in a way that he speaks to us, in a way that's real, that's not fabricated, it's not made up, it's real. This is the promise of the prophets. I will write my law on your hearts and on your minds. And you will know God from the least to the greatest. And in the same way, we said that, that when we have that personal revelation of God, it always must correspond with the word of God. Because the voice of God does not contradict the word of God. But rather, when the two are brought together, there is an explosive revelation of who God is. And we see it here in the story. That God, that Jesus reveals himself to these men. He speaks to them. He is a voice to them. But also, what is he speaking about? He's speaking about his word. So the two of those come together along with this experience. And so an encounter with God is a connection with the presence, the personal revelation, and the word of God. And that produces a change. We see here that there's a a change that occurs in these men. The first change that we notice is that they recognize Jesus. So perhaps they didn't recognize Jesus because they, they, they didn't have it in their radar that Jesus would ever appear to them. Maybe they thought that that final day on Friday was, was the end. That when that tomb closed, it was done. There was no more Jesus, no more, it's all over, time to go back home. Maybe the idea of the resurrection didn't compute. Maybe they couldn't imagine it. And so they don't recognize him. If that's part of the reason, perhaps, maybe they thought, well, why would Jesus appear to us? They weren't expecting it. And instead, Jesus appears to them and the change occurs that they recognized him. They also recognized and processed the encounter with Jesus and called it the burning in our hearts. I don't know about you, but there have have been a lot of times where I've had um, a deep 
a deep spiritual experience with the Lord. And usually, and as I think about it, usually when that is happening, I don't recognize it. It's afterwards, after I'm able to sit back and process it, it's like, oh, I see that now, and I see that now, and I see that now. Have you ever had a circumstance in your life, maybe a job change, maybe you had to move somewhere, and you didn't see the pieces as they were happening. You were kind of like, what's going on, what's going on, what's going on? And you're in this kind of waiting pattern. You don't know what's happening. But when everything unfolds, you sit back and you say, oh, I get it now. And that time when that happened, even though I didn't understand it, even though it was a source of frustration, I see what God was doing there. And when that happened over there, I see what God was doing. You start putting these pieces together. You begin to process it. And these guys said, when he was speaking, I feel it now. I recognize it. That was burning in our hearts that we experienced. They also understood the value of the scriptural teaching that Jesus provided for them. This was important for them. And when it was all said and done, once they recognized Jesus, they ran and turned around and ran home or ran back to Jerusalem to tell the others. Now remember, it's late. It's nighttime. They don't have street lamps. There's no cars. There's no bikes or horses or any, or there might be donkeys. But they went all the way back to Jerusalem to tell these guys what had happened. You know, in this story, what speaks to me is that our life-changing encounters with Jesus compel us to share it with others. They compel us. If we really have a life-changing encounter with God, we're compelled to share it with people. It should be so natural. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Go and take the gospel to the ends of the earth, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And, and, and these men who had these profound encounters with Jesus ended up changing their entire lives. And it's kind of like what, what uh, Bryce and Erica have shared with us this morning, that their encounter with Jesus has, has changed their life in a way that takes them to the ends of the earth. And now perhaps we're not called to go to the ends of the earth as they're called to go in some places, but we are called to go into the world and to share the gospel, not because we have to, but because we're compelled to, because it's natural. Because Jesus has changed us. So why, why are some of the reasons why maybe some don't? Well, I think one of the reasons is I wonder sometimes if the encounter isn't real. That maybe they think, oh, I've got to share the gospel, whatever. But it's not meaningful to them. There's no changed life. There's no experience with God that compels them. It's just another commandment in a list of a long, of a long list of commandments. And perhaps, though, I I think probably more often than not, many people are afraid to. Afraid of what people might think of them. Afraid of if people will even believe them. Perhaps afraid that, or even, even the mindset that, you know what, nobody wants to hear this. Nobody wants to hear this. You know, a hundred times, it takes a hundred times for someone in that country to, to hear the gospel before they're receptive to it or at least respond to it in some way. 
I wonder what it would be like here in America. What do you think? A hundred times? And if it takes a hundred times, that would be quite a commitment on our part. You know, we say the one time, hey, I'd love to tell you about Jesus. I don't want to hear it. Okay. You know? But this is a change in our heart that compels us to share it with others. And you know, they took a risk. They ran all the way back to Jerusalem. They shared, hey, you won't believe this, but Jesus appeared to us on the road to Emmaus. I wonder how many of them, like Thomas, said, yeah, right. I'll believe it when I see it. In fact, that's what he said. How many of them could have said that? But there's something that happens at the end of this section. In verse 36, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Shalom, peace be with you. It's almost like that story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where they said, okay, king, I want you to know that we're not going to bow down to you. And we believe that our God has the power to rescue us. But even if he doesn't, know that we will not kneel to another God. And then God shows up and it was probably like, yes, how awesome. We can trust Jesus. We can have confidence in sharing our encounters because the real risen Jesus is behind them, right? This is not just stories. These are not just made-up events. In fact, sometimes we have those real encounters and it's easy to walk home and say, "Ah, that really didn't happen. I'll just go back to living my life the way I was. But we can have confidence that when we share these events, when we share these encounters, they're not just stories. The real risen Jesus is behind them all. And that's what it means to meet Jesus. And when we meet with him, those encounters change lives. And they change the lives of these two men, these two disciples of Jesus on the road to Emmaus on that Sunday morning some 2,000 years ago. And they still change lives today. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. And thank you that your word doesn't come back void. Thank you that when we share our encounters with you, when we share the gospel, we don't have to worry about sharing something that's false and that will put us to shame. Whether people choose to believe it and accept it, or not, your story is truth, and the stories that you have engraved in our hearts are also true. The encounters that we have with you may not seem real to the world standards. In fact, they may mock us, but they are real, and we know it, and we believe it, and we've experienced it, and we are compelled to share it. So, Father, thank you for writing your word on our hearts and on our minds. Thank you for offering us the privilege of having real encounters with you. Give us the courage, God, I pray, 
to share it with others. That they may see the change. There's a lot of things that people can buy in this world, but they can't buy changed lives. That comes only from you. And when people see it, they know it. So Father, help us to be those beacons of light in this dark, dark world. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples and He is our rabbi. rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.